Morning, everybody. Hey, that was like a very enthusiastic good morning. Appreciate it, Bob. I heard you in the midst of everybody else. I want you to know that. So a couple hundred years before the stories we've been telling in Matthew, so go back just about 200 years, Israel was under the control of a Greek state called the Seleucids. So this is one of you know, many different imperial powers that, that oppressed Israel over the course of that couple hundred years. This one, though, had a, a particularly bad, big bad guy. And that was the leader of the Seleucids, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. If you've been here a long time, you've heard about him before. He's the guy who slaughtered a pig inside the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, he was dead set on desecrating Israel's religious identity and trying to wipe away the Jewish identity as a whole. And so, unsurprisingly, there was rebellion against him. And the biggest rebellion in Jerusalem was led by a family called the Maccabees. There's actually some books written about them from this time period in history that are very, very important, very significant historical works about their war. In fact, a different situation that the Maccabees were involved in that um, is not the one we're going to talk about today is the basis of Hanukkah. It's a really significant family, really significant war that took place. And early in the war, the way that it, it was the kind of playing out was guerrilla warfare in the Judean foothills. So you have this kind of, you know, small bands of rebel troops who are trying to fight against the Greek forces. Well, at one point, Antiochus Epiphanes, big bad guy, hears about the caves where a rebel group is hiding, and he decides to go take them out. But he is so evil and so devious that the way he chose to do it was unique. He sent forces to attack them, not on any day, but on the Sabbath. So for the Jewish people, we'll talk more about this in a minute, the Sabbath is a holy day. It's a day where you don't work. And depending on how strictly you follow that, work could mean a lot of different things. And so when the forces of the Seleucids arrived at the caves, they found a group of men who didn't build defenses against them because to build would have been to work on the Sabbath, didn't even lift a finger to defend themselves. And they were just slaughtered. They allowed themselves to be slaughtered because it was the Sabbath. And to them, it was better not to work and be killed than to break God's law and fight back. And so they said, recorded in the book of Maccabees, let us die in our innocence, for heaven and earth will bear witness that we are being killed unjustly. And they allowed themselves to die. Now, not every single Jewish believer at the time of Jesus was that serious about the Sabbath. But you've got to understand, that's the history of this day. There are other situations very similar to this, one involving Egypt, one involving Rome, stories where enemies came to attack Israel, and because it was the Sabbath, they wouldn't even resist or fight back. So when Jesus, in last week's text, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, what you need to know is that that concept of rest is deeply, deeply significant to the Jewish people. And so in order to explore that theme more, right after the story we looked at last week, Matthew shows us Jesus entering into a Sabbath-based controversy where he's going to be confronted about the significance of the Sabbath. And as he usually does, he's going to take that opportunity to not just talk about the Sabbath, but to talk about something much, much bigger and something that has a lot to say to us today. So let's jump right in. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So Jesus and his disciples are on a walk. 
The disciples are kind of having a snack, and they're confronted by Pharisees. And we're going to see Pharisees a lot after this. This kind of actually starts off a long section where controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees happens over and over again. So we'll probably talk more specifically about them in a future sermon, but just a general idea so you know who we're talking about. Pharisees were a kind of popular religious sect within Judaism. So there's different approaches to Judaism in the time of Jesus, and the Pharisaic one was very popular among the common people. And what it involved primarily was really strict adherence to the laws of Israel and to the rabbis' teachings about the laws of Israel. So both the written tradition and the oral tradition that came from the rabbis. So they were kind of defined by, in our daily life, we apply the law. That is how we follow God. Again, it was very popular in the time of Jesus and specifically kind of among everyday, regular, common folks. So you can see the kind of character of that law-keeping focus right here that when they see what Jesus, well, not Jesus, but it says Jesus' disciples, when he sees what they're doing, he says they're breaking the law. Now, what they're doing on any other day, uncontroversially, completely fine. It's actually not, it's not only allowed in the law, it's specifically designed in the law to happen. If you lived in Israel, you weren't supposed to harvest the very edges of your fields. You're supposed to leave that. And both Leviticus and Deuteronomy talk about the reason for that. You leave the edges of your field untrimmed so that the poor, the oppressed, the traveler, people who are desperate for food can have access to the food on the edges of your field. It's like built right into the law of God, this compassion and care for the vulnerable. So what they're doing any other day would be fine, but the Pharisees say the problem is you're doing it today. You're doing it on the Sabbath. Now, as we said a second ago, the Sabbath was taken incredibly seriously by some people at Jesus' time, and especially the Pharisees and those who followed the Pharisees. The Sabbath um, is the seventh day of the week. It's Saturday, and um, it's a day of rest. It literally just means to stop. It's a day when your activity and your work is supposed to cease, and it's looking back at the seventh day of creation where God rests, and it's an invitation to kind of participate in that rest, and look forward to the day when God would give his people true rest. That's the idea behind it. Again, some people took it really, really seriously. The problem is, the Old Testament, when it talks about the Sabbath, it doesn't get super specific. It says you're not supposed to work, you're supposed to cease from your labors and and rest, but it doesn't say exactly what that would look like. And so what the rabbis did, which is what they did with a huge number of things taught in the Old Testament, is they decided to get really, really specific about what it would actually mean to work or not work. Isaac talked a little bit about this last week, but there was really, really extensive oral traditions in addition to the written law. So you have our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and then you had rabbis who would interpret it and debate about it and talk about different ways that you're supposed to apply it in your everyday life. Like, how does this actually fit into your life? And it got incredibly specific, and some people, including many of the Pharisees and those who they taught, believed that that oral tradition was of equal authority to the written one. So it's a big deal. It's not just like some rabbi's opinion. If you're of that school of thought, you're like, this is, this is like on the same level as the Bible. And so they tried to figure out what exactly does it mean to work? So for example, before we even talk about, you know, what the disciples are doing, one of the things you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath is carry a burden. But the Bible doesn't tell you what a burden is. So the rabbis would debate back and forth, how heavy does something have to be before it becomes a burden? Like, am I allowed to, can I carry this? Can I carry that? And they came up with a a really, at least to me, a very surprisingly low amount of weight. Are there any, like, super Jewish history nerds who know what you were allowed to carry on the Sabbath? Whoa, two dried figs. Were you here in first service, Susan? (laughs) She says, no, I'm Jewish. (laughs) Nice. You can ask Susan what she carried around yesterday. I'm just kidding. 
Now, two dried figs. That's what a burden is. Can't carry anything more than that. So you get an idea of kind of how strict this was. When it came to Sabbath adherence, they came up with 39 different basic activities that were categorized as work. Now, on the surface, what the disciples were doing didn't really count as any of them, if you're being kind of generous with how you interpret it. But according to like a really strict reading, they could be seen as breaking four different rules of those 39. Because you're not allowed to harvest, you're not allowed to winnow, you're not allowed to thresh, and you're not allowed to prepare a meal. Now, again, if you're being mellow about it, you know the disciples aren't really doing any of those things. But if you're really being strict, you go, hey, when you pluck that grain, you're harvesting it. And when you break off the outside and throw away the chaff, you're winnowing and you're threshing. And when you eat it, you're preparing a meal. You're not allowed to do any of those things on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees could say, you're actually breaking the law in four different ways when you do this. And what's so awesome about Jesus is he doesn't argue on the level of what they're arguing. This is what he does time and time again. He could be like, okay, you guys, seriously, you really think these guys are harvesting? Do you see a sickle in anyone's hand? They're just having a snack on the Sabbath. That's not what he does. Instead, he, he responds with what I honestly have come to think this week is one of his most brilliant responses to a controversy. So I want to read the whole thing in its entirety, and then we'll walk through it piece by piece. He, that's Jesus, said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is like a brilliant three-part masterpiece response. So let's jump into the first part. He said to them, have you not read? Now, I I love this because he says it twice, and it's like the ultimate burn on a Pharisee. These guys are law experts. Their whole thing is studying and memorizing the Bible. And he he starts by being like, have you guys even read the Bible before? Super awesome. Total burn. It's one of those things that you don't even notice when you read it, but Jesus is just kind of, he's setting the tone here. He goes, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. He's telling a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And at that point in history, David is not the king yet. He's going to become the king. He's been anointed by Samuel, but King Saul is still king. And this is at the very beginning of a period of David's life where Saul wants David dead. And Saul is going to pursue him and try to kill him. So David has literally just fled from Saul for the first time. He didn't have time to gather supplies. He's got him and his men, and he's running. And he comes to a town called Nob, which is a a holy city at that time. This is before the temple was built in Jerusalem. So there's some different cities that kind of served as the seat of the, like, holy sacrificial system. So at that point, it's a place called Nob. David and his men show up, and he says, we're, we're really hungry. Do you have any food to offer? And the priest there says, the only thing we have is the bread of the presence. You can see the translators capitalize presence. And the reason they do that is because this is not ordinary bread. The bread of the presence is something that you're commanded to do in law under the sacrificial system. And what it was is 12 pieces of bread that were baked fresh every day to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were put in the presence of God inside the tabernacle and later in the temple, right outside the Holy of Holies. And they were there every day. At the end of the day, you would take them and put fresh bread out. And the only people who were allowed to eat that bread at the end of the day were priests. So let me ask you a very easy but tricky question. According to the letter of the law, should David have eaten that bread? No. No. 
He's not a priest. He's not even a Levite, not even from the right tribe. Jesus even says it was not lawful for him to eat it. But the point Jesus is making is both the priest, a guy named Ahimelech, and David, who's going to become Israel's greatest king. They both are on the same page that in this case, eating that bread was actually the right thing to do. There's a human need that actually is more significant, more important than keeping the law of the bread of the presence. You can already see the direction that Jesus' argument is starting to take. Now, in this first example, the Pharisees could have an instant comeback if they wanted to. Because they could just say, well, hold on, that's not the same situation at all. Because the law talks about places where you can make exceptions. And the places where you make exceptions are like when someone's life is on the line, when someone is desperate, when someone's in serious trouble. And so David was desperate. He was going to starve. His men needed that bread. So, of course, you can flex the rules there. But, like, that's not the case with your disciples. They don't need to have this grain right now. They're not going to starve to death. So it's not an equivalent situation. Now, they don't even say that, but they could, and Jesus knows they could. So his second example gets more specific and more kind of undebatable. Or have you not read in the law? Again, right right off the bat, you guys love the law. Have you even actually read it? Because if you had, you would know this. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, remember that's what this whole controversy is about, can't work on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. It's kind of a weird sentence, but here's what Jesus means, and the Pharisees would have known exactly what he meant. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but the priests have their temple duties to perform on the Sabbath. In fact, if you take a look at the law, their temple duties are supposed to be double. There's twice as many sacrifices that happen on the Sabbath. So while everyone's supposed to rest, what are the priests doing? They're working. That's what Jesus means by profane the Sabbath. He goes, they break the rule that says you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath every single Saturday and yet they're guiltless. So follow the logic. What Jesus is saying in both of these examples, and he's going to give a third one that kind of specifies more what he's talking about, but in both of these examples, Jesus is pointing out that even within the law of God, there is a hierarchy of value. There are some things that are more important than other things. Now, depending on your personality, that could be very difficult already to stomach. Like some of us are just wired to be like, listen, is it a rule or is it not? Because if it is, you have to follow it. And if you don't, don't worry about it. And so we're, we're, it's really hard for us to not kind of create a dichotomy with that. But Jesus isn't saying this rule's bad and this rule's good. He's saying when these two good things that God has commanded butt up against each other, they're not all equivalent. So in the case of David, to eat that bread, that's fine. You can, in that situation, you should, in fact, violate the law about the bread of the presence to serve a higher thing, a higher goal that's above the bread of the presence laws in that hierarchy of values. He gives another example in John's gospel. In John 7, he's debating Pharisees again, and he tells them, hey, what about the circumcision law? Because according to circumcision law in Israel, if a son is born, eight days after he's born, you circumcise him. And so what Jesus is saying, he doesn't even have to say it, everyone would have known what he meant. He's saying, what happens when that eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath? And it's one of those weird things, because if you don't know Jewish customs and you're reading it, He leaves it unspoken, what happens? But in the question, the answer is there. What happens, and what still happens then, what happened then, is you circumcise the baby, even if it's the Sabbath. And so in that story, Jesus is making the exact same point. Circumcision law, Sabbath law. When those two things butt up against each other, circumcision law is more important. So the rabbi comes and he does that work, even though it's the Sabbath. This is what's so powerful about this example, though. He goes, listen, 
when the priests are supposed to work because they have priestly duties in the temple of God, that temple duty is more significant than the Sabbath law. Then he says something greater than the temple is here. See what he's doing? So you've got Sabbath law, you've got temple, and then you've got Jesus above all of them. That's powerful. I love that argument. And the point of him being greater than the temple is really significant. We talked about this a few weeks ago, so I won't belabor the point, but the temple is this place that is the unique manifestation of God's presence during that time in history. God is everywhere. The Jewish people believed that. They understood that. But he manifested himself in a unique way in the temple. And Jesus is saying, in me, there's an even more significant manifestation of the presence of God. God is here. So he, he's starting to build that hierarchy in front of them. He goes, hey, turns out a hungry person, more important than that bread of the presence law. Turns out temple law, more important than Sabbath law. And it turns out I am actually more significant even than the temple. Something greater than the temple is here. Then he gives a third argument. And if you had known what this means, then he quotes from Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That quote from Hosea 6, he's already quoted it before, just three chapters ago. In chapter 9, Jesus is getting confronted by the Pharisees, again, about the fact that he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. Some of you will remember this passage. It's when he added a tax collector, Matthew, the author of this book, to his disciples. And then he's spending time with Matthew and Matthew's friends. And the Pharisees have a problem with that. And Jesus' response to them is the same thing. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. And the thing he's invoking is the time period of the prophets, specifically the prophet Hosea. And during Hosea's time, there was a problem that was constant in Israel. And that was that the Israelite people would obey the religious rituals, more or less. They weren't perfect at that either, but they took the rituals seriously. They did the sacrificial system, but they neglected more important, more weighty priorities, like mercy, like caring for the poor and the downtrodden. And so one thing that's really important here, and we're going to talk about this more in a minute, is that that kind of Jewish rhetoric, it's really common in the prophets, where he says, I desire this and not that. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. That it does not mean that God does not desire sacrifice at all. It's a kind of rhetorical move that means if these two things are on the table, this one is of greater value. It's not throwing out the sacrificial system. He's saying when these two things are in conflict, the thing that is of greater weight, of greater importance to me, is mercy. You actually see that illustrated in the story of David and his men. Now, if you're paying really careful attention and you're really into the Bible and you're familiar with it, you might have noticed something that Jesus did in those three arguments. He has a story about Israel's greatest king, King David. Then he has an example that comes from the temple and the priestly system. And then he has an example that's quoted directly from the prophets. So he takes what, especially to the Pharisees in this day, would have been kind of considered the three seats of authority in Jewish thought, law, prophet, priest. And he gives one awesome example from all three of them. It's this amazingly comprehensive response to their complaint. He goes, listen, I can give you an example from Kings, which is from the writing section of the Hebrew Bible. I can give you an example from the temple, which is from the law section of the Bible. And I can give you an example from Hosea, which is from the prophet section of the Bible. So I've got all my bases covered to say that you are actually the ones who have misunderstood this. And then, as if that wasn't enough, he ends the section by saying, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
And in this, Jesus is doing something that he did all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where he's saying, let's talk about these laws and how you guys have tried to obey them. And time after time in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember way back when we were doing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus over and over again is saying, this is how you try to apply these laws. This is what you do. Let me tell you what the actual greater ethical principle underlying that law is. Jesus has this authority to interpret the law and to say, you've missed the point of it. It wasn't just about not killing. It was about not hating your brother. It wasn't just about not divorce. It was about not lusting in your heart after another woman. And so he is over and over in the Gospel of Matthew revealing that he has the authority to interpret the law and that he's the one who can tell you exactly how to apply it. So in this case, he ends by saying really directly, you want to know who actually has control over the Sabbath? Who can tell you what it's for and what it's not for? Who can tell you what it's all actually been pointing to? It's me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Incredibly dramatic. And again, it's very, very different than it would be if he had just said, you know, actually, they're not breaking any laws, and you guys are being a little bit stingy with your interpretation of the rabbis. They're not harvesting. They're not threshing. They're not winnowing. They're not preparing a meal. Come on. He could have done that. He didn't. He takes the opportunity to say, you guys have misunderstood the law and how it's applied completely. You misunderstood the whole thing. And so let me tell you how it actually works. Now, after that, as if it wasn't enough just to kind of like argue and debate about the law, Jesus is going to go give like an in-the-flesh example immediately after. So it says, he went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they, this is the Pharisees still, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Now, that so that they might accuse him language, I think is pretty significant because this time it actually puts the cards on the table of the Pharisees. They're not actually interested in learning this new rabbi's opinion. They're trying to trap him. And so it doesn't say that about when they ask the question in the grain field, but I think it does indicate that that's there. Because honestly, if you read the story, it's a little bit weird that there's Pharisees walking around in the grain field on the Sabbath. And it doesn't say this, but the way I picture it every time is that Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain field, having a little snack, and like a Pharisee pops out from behind the grain. He's like, ha, breaking the law. Now again, almost certainly not what happened. But it does, this does indicate to me that what they've been doing from the get-go is trying to get Jesus in trouble. They're not like concerned, oh, hey, we noticed your disciples eating and we want to make sure you know. That's actually, the rabbis don't like that. No, they're trying to catch and it's explicit this time. Jesus just completely destroyed them in the argument. There's no like, there's no coming back from that. He goes, okay, you got a problem with my disciples? Let me tell you from the law, the prophets, and the, and the king why you're wrong. And so it's, they take a different strategy. They get him at a point blank, like zero controversy about this one. If he heals this guy, he's breaking the rabbinic tradition, no question. Because the traditions got really, really specific even about healing. So not just like miraculous healing, but healing of any kind. You were only allowed on the Sabbath, according to the rabbi's tradition, to prevent death or to end like extreme physical suffering. So for example, some rabbis taught that you're allowed to put a bandage on someone to stop bleeding, but if you put medicine on that bandaid that might promote healing, that would be work. Because you're doing more than what's necessary. You just do the bare minimum. So this guy comes in, he's got a withered hand. It's not really clear what that even means, but he's got some problem with his hand, which is clearly an ongoing chronic thing. He's not desperate. He's not going to die from it. And so the Pharisees see an opportunity here, which reveals something about them, by the way. They see a guy walking in with a, a physical ailment that probably made him miserable, 
and they go, here's how we catch Jesus, right? This guy's just trying to go to church. So in their opinion, without question, if Jesus can even heal this guy, he can wait till tomorrow. If he does it on the Sabbath, it's unnecessary. He's breaking the law. So they lost their argument, and it's almost like they're saying, all right, put your money where your mouth is. Are you going to do this or not? That's what Jesus does. It's an amazing, definitive moment. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is an argument Jesus made a few times already, right? Talking about the birds and the flowers and the fact that God cares more about human beings than he does about birds. He goes, you guys, even on the Sabbath, you're the most rigid, hardcore Sabbath observers ever. And if your sheep falls into a hole, you know you're going to look both ways and pull the sheep out. How much more valuable is this human being made in the image of God? And then he makes the definitive interpretation of the law. Notice, he doesn't say, so I'm willing to break the law for this. He says, actually, this is lawful. Stretch your hand out. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And what this reveals about Jesus and about the Pharisees is the dramatic difference that they have in their hierarchy of what's valuable and what's not. Remember we talked about how the whole argument Jesus made is within the law, some things are of greater significance than others. If you've got circumcision and the Sabbath, we prioritize circumcision according to the Jewish tradition. If you've got the temple and you've got temple duties that the priests have to fulfill, and you've got the Sabbath, the temple takes precedence. And when Jesus is there in the synagogue and he sees a human being made in the image of God suffering, someone who he is able to have mercy on, he says, God made it really clear in Hosea, mercy, mercy goes over sacrifice every time. So he shows where his hierarchy of values takes him. And the Pharisees show theirs as well. I mean, this guy's healed and they don't go like, whoa, a miracle. They don't go like, awesome. Our brother who lives in the same area as us has been healed. No, it says, let's look at it again. It's so, it's the hard-heartedness is so dramatic. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They want to kill Jesus because of this. And what that reveals about them is that the hierarchy itself, the religious structures and forms that they observe have become ultimate to them. They become not a means to an end, they've become the end in itself. So for Jesus, the forms and structures of, of the religious system are meant to serve a greater purpose. Very simply put, in Hosea, it's mercy. We're gonna get more specific in a second. But for the Pharisees, the structures themselves, the religious forms are the entire idea. And they've missed the entire idea of pursuing the heart of God in the midst of that. So your, your religious structures, that hierarchy is supposed to lead you towards something. But for the Pharisees, the structure itself has become everything. Their entire kind of religious framework is about pursuing the rules and the forms for their own sake rather than to lead them towards the heart of God. And we absolutely have the exact same potential problem in Christianity today. All, this entire story is in an in ancient Jewish context, but for Christians, there is just as great of a danger that the religious kind of forms and structures that we pursue that are good things, just like the law was a good thing for Israel, we take those good things and we make them ultimate. 
And instead of being the, the methods that we use given to us by God to pursue the heart of God, we make them the entire point. Before we get any further, there's, I hate that I even have to say this, but I absolutely do. There's a, a false dichotomy that's a really common problem anytime someone starts talking about this. Like there are some of you already who are like, yes, throw the rules out. It's not about structures. It's just about pursuing the heart of God. We don't need any of that stuff. We don't need rules. We don't need forms. We don't need structure. We just need to pursue God. And to that, I want to say, quite honestly, that's an unbelievably immature position to take. You can't even go to the grocery store successfully without a shopping list. What makes you think you can like pursue the relationship with almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, without the forms and structures that he gave you as a good gift to do that? You know what happens to me if I go to the store with no shopping list? There are two equal and opposite dangers in front of me at that point. One is that I will go home without things that I do need, right? The other, especially if you go to Costco, is that I will come home with things that I don't need and a great reason why I have all of them. And lest you think this is a hypothetical situation, you are welcome to go find my wife and ask her what happened on Friday when the list that she made didn't load right on my phone. (laughs) I came home without things that she needed. (laughs) We can't even shop without a list. And so this, this view that just says, yeah, the framework is dangerous. The structures of religion are dangerous. Forget about religion, I just wanna pursue Jesus. It's not possible, and not only is it not possible, but who gave you the forms and structures with which to pursue a relationship with God? God did. They're there in the New Testament on purpose. And so be gracious with yourself if this is you or this has been you. It's been me at different points in my life. If, but now I am extremely resistant to the idea that Christianity is, and this is how it's always framed, a relationship, not a religion. It's a false dichotomy. Christianity is both. I mean, what do you think we're doing here on Sunday morning singing songs and taking communion together? Now, of course, just like Hosea says, I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. When it comes down to like what's most important, your relationship with God, your pursuit of the heart of God, that is the main thing. But the way that Christians have always done that is through these gifts that God has given us of sacrament, of church. And so, want to kind of avoid that, that potential rabbit hole that people can go down. But the problem and the main point of this passage is that sometimes we run the risk of valuing the structure so much that the structure becomes the main thing. It becomes what we're serving. And we're not trying to get at the heart of God anymore. We're just trying to do the stuff that makes us look like we're Christians. And so you have to have that structure ordered properly and aiming you towards the right highest ideal. And so the question you have to ask immediately is like, okay, well then what is that like highest ideal? What's the thing I'm supposed to be pursuing? Why didn't Jesus just tell us what the most important things are? And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This is from 10 chapters later in Matthew 22. We'll probably get here in like three years. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now this is weird because this seems on the surface like it might, you know, if you have an overly rigid view of this, then it might seem like Jesus should be like, I can't pick a favorite commandment. They're all amazing. God made all of them, so I love them all equally. Jesus has no problem answering this question. What's the greatest commandment? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, I have no problem telling you what's at the top of the hierarchy of values. It's to love God with everything you have. That's what heart, soul, and mind means. Love God with everything you have. 
and then treat your neighbor as if they were more important than you. And he even says explicitly, that's what all the law and prophets is about. They all point back to this. So if you want to get your religious structures and forms right, they should point you towards that, towards loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as if they were more important than you are. Now Christians, again, we run the risk of messing this up all the time. It's very easy for us to become Pharisaic in our practice of Christianity, where the form and the structure becomes the end instead of just a means to an end. I'll give you an example. And this is the second service crowd, so I'm sure you guys are all fine on this. First service probably got convicted by this example. Many of you rightly prioritize being at church regularly. Praise God. Again, like I said, that's a, church is a gift to you from God to aid you in pursuing these things. Some of you guys, it's a really big deal to be here every week. Some of you guys, it's a really big deal to be here on time. Now, if you're one of those people, but you also have little kids, you know that sometimes it's a big deal to me to get to church on time. I want my kids there. I want them in the worship. I want them to grow up knowing and loving God. But what happens when you've told your little kid five or six times to get ready because it's time to leave for church and the clock is ticking and they're not doing what you asked them to do? Might you run the risk of treating your kids in a way that actually subverts the reason why you want them in church in the first place? That that main ideal, which is I want you to know God and love God, actually gets hindered by your desperate feeling that we need to be there on time. And this is especially dangerous if there's part of you like there is part of me, honestly, and, and all of us that's going, I want to be seen at church on time, right? The structure, which is a good thing, you should be at church every week, you should be on time. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm not throwing any shade at all the people who I saw come in late today. <laughs> I'm really not. You should want to be at church on time. But that is not the end. That's a means to an end. You want to pursue this, the love of God and the service and love of your neighbor. We do this in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's really easy to to be somebody who gives to the church really faithfully, but you're stingy with people who are desperately in need around you, right? Or the most common thing, and this is a generality, so you're gonna have to search your heart and ask yourself, where does this fit in with my life? The most common thing is that there are certain sins that you know that the Bible, the New Testament teaches you to fight against. And the ones you prioritize fighting against are the ones that will get you in trouble publicly, the ones that the church will see and look down upon. But then you just fully indulge in some stuff that's just as big of a deal in the New Testament, but it's not gonna show up for church people to see. You know what I'm talking about. We all do this in different ways. And that is a, a window into the fact that the structure is more important to you than the goal. I want to love God. I want to love my neighbor. I want to pursue God. But am I actually doing the things I'm doing and not doing the things I'm not doing because I want to make sure that I fit in the structure really well and not because I care about the heart of God and what he desires for me? You've got to look deep within yourself to answer these kinds of questions and just recognize if we get to the point where the external structures of your religion are the thing you're pursuing instead of the means by which you are pursuing faithfulness to God, it's a huge problem. It's a problem in Jesus' day. It's what he's confronting here and it's a problem in our day. Now I wanna end with how Matthew ends because that's not actually the end of the section. And this looks like a weird ending until you see why he's doing it. See, it says Jesus aware of this. So he, Matthew wants you to put these stories together. So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. He's not afraid of controversies. The thing he's aware of, by the way, is that the Pharisees want to destroy him. 
He's not afraid of that. It's just not the right time yet. It's going to face them later. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And this leads into Matthew's single longest Old Testament quote. It starts like this. It's from Isaiah chapter 42, one of the famous, they call them servant songs from the book of Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, if you've been here for the whole series, this might be a little reward for you. What does that sound like? My beloved son in whom I am well pleased and then the spirit of God upon him. That sound like a story from the Gospel of Matthew to anybody? It's the baptism of Jesus. This is written 500 years before Jesus is born. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That term translated cry aloud is harsher than it sounds in English. It's actually the word you would use for the sound ravens make. It's like that croaking. It's a sound you could use to describe barking dogs or like a big disorderly crowd. And the idea of that couplet is Jesus is not someone who's out picking fights for no reason. So when you see him arguing with the Pharisees like this, it's on purpose. It's for a goal. It's for a reason. He's trying to accomplish something. He's not just out there trying to cause fights. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Such a beautiful picture of what Jesus is like. If you recall from last week, Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. This is what Jesus is like. It's predicted by the prophet's hundreds of years before he comes, that he's not going to be the kind of person who's looking to break people down. He actually wants to build them up. He's not going to blow out the smoldering wick. He's going to fan it into greater flame. And then that gets explained in the clearest terms in the next verse. It says, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That word justice in the original Old Testament passage from Isaiah 42 That's the Hebrew word mishpat, very powerful word in the Hebrew prophets. And it's, it's the concept of justice, but exploded to a much bigger level than what our English word justice usually means. When we use justice in the modern world, we typically are just talking about taking someone who has done unjust things and punishing them or bringing them down. That's definitely part of what mishpat is. It's half the equation, is that you take the one who is the evildoer and you push that down. But equally important in the concept of mishpat, of true justice, is also the lifting up of the broken and downtrodden. Those who are desperate, those who are miserable, who are in need. True justice, bringing justice to victory, also involves lifting them up. So Matthew's reflecting on the story of Jesus going into the synagogue and healing this man's withered hand. And he says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. He doesn't blow out the smoldering wick. He fans it into flame. He doesn't break off the bruised reed. No, he brings justice to victory. He lifts up the downtrodden and the broken. That's where Matthew ends, and it's where we should end as well. See, Jesus said last week, come to me if you want rest. And this passage shows what that rest is going to actually look like. It looks like lifting up the broken. So I want to imagine you or you imagine yourself, rather, in that situation that we see Jesus in in that synagogue. Synagogues, you meet on the Sabbath. It's what you're supposed to do. It's like the ancient Jewish idea of what church is, still to this day for many practicing Jews. Now, Jesus, 
He's there on the Sabbath. Isn't that interesting? So he's not just a dude who's trying to find laws to break for fun. He's there on the Sabbath. And who else is in there that day? This guy with a withered hand. We don't know anything else about him. So this is all completely us just guessing. But you can imagine, this is a faithful dude. How do we know that? Because he's in the synagogue on Saturday, just like he's supposed to be. Even though he's probably prayed for this hand who knows how many times and had it not be healed yet. But you know what? He's there. He's in the synagogue doing the things that God commanded, trying to pursue the heart of God in the way that God wants him to. And there's this horrible, you know, it's like a, like bullies from a movie from the 90s or something. The Pharisees come in and they're like, here's the way we can trap Jesus. There's no pity, there's no mercy for this guy. It's just he's an opportunity for them to trap this rabbi they don't like. And so this dude who probably doesn't want to talk about his hands today, right? The Pharisees go, what, are you gonna heal this guy? It's the Sabbath. And then Jesus shows what rest looks like. He goes, stretch your hand out. He goes, you guys pull sheep out of, out of holes on the Sabbath. You think I'm not gonna care about this man made in the image of God? Stretch out your hand. And he heals him. So here's the thing. This is where you and I fit in this picture. Some of us have had miraculous things like that happen in our lives where you needed something desperately and you prayed and God came through for you. Some of us have had times in our lives when we pray and pray and pray and it's all we are hearing is silence from God. What you need to know is that if you have trusted in Jesus, you have been offered an even greater mercy than the one that this man received. You need to know that God has looked upon you with mercy, the mercy that is at the center of the heart of God. And God has looked upon you with mercy and said, stretch out your sin. Stretch out your rebellion. Stretch out your brokenness. What was it worth? How high up the hierarchy of value in the heart of God is showing mercy to you and me as sinners? He's willing to send his son to earth to die in our place. And so know that that rest that's offered, the thing that the Sabbath was always supposed to point to, Remember, it's the seventh day, it's the day God rests. It's this promise that rest is coming for you. Rest from all of the enemies that surround you, Satan, sin, and death. We talked about this last week. You are invited into that rest because God saw fit to do all that was necessary to make that possible. And so we end how we end every week, with communion, with this physical picture, this participation, Paul calls it, in the body and blood of Jesus this opportunity to remember, not just with our minds, but with our bodies as well, what was accomplished in order to show you that mercy that God wanted to show you. Jesus says, if you had known what Hosea meant when he said, mercy, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. God desired so much to show you mercy. He desired so much to show you mercy that he was willing to make the highest sacrifice imaginable in all reality, the death of his son, in order to show you mercy. And so just know, every single one of us is like that man with the withered hand, right? No way to heal ourselves, desperate, and yet God comes and says, hold it out, I've got it. And the way that he did that in the most definitive way in all of human history 
was the death of his son Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago and his resurrection from the grave three days later. So let's remember together the broken body of the Son of God. Jesus himself said, this is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. Your withered soul has been made new if you entrust yourself to Jesus because of his spilled blood on the cross for you. Let's remember together. Lord, I thank you for this incredible picture of your mercy, this incredible picture of your priorities, that when you're faced with abiding by the teachings of the rabbis in the first century and looking good in front of the Pharisees and those who follow them, when you're faced with a choice between that or showing mercy to a human made in the image of God, you choose mercy. And Lord, every single one of us has the opportunity for freedom and eternal security with you because that is what you are like. Because you choose mercy. So Lord, I pray that we would recognize that and that that would shape the way we live our lives as Christians. I'm thinking about James 1.27 that says, true and undefiled religion is this, to visit the orphan and the widow in their distress and to keep yourself unstained from the world. And Lord, how much trouble we get into when we, we prioritize one of those over the other. Lord, I pray that we would see the ways that you call us to pursue you and that we would take them, Lord, as the gifts that they are, but never lose sight of the fact that it is all about pursuing a greater and deeper love for you and pursuing a greater and deeper ability to serve and love our neighbor as ourself. Thank you that you demonstrated what that kind of love looks like. In Jesus' name. Amen.